I.O. 9 presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here are your hosts, John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 34 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Hi, I'm John Joseph Adams. I'm the editor of Fantasy Magazine and Lightspeed Magazine, and of a bunch of anthologies uh, about wizards, zombies, dystopian societies, vampires, Sherlock Holmes, and other cool stuff. And I'm David Barr Kirtley. I'm the author of many short stories, including The Disciple, about a college that teaches a class in black magic. The story appeared in Weird Tales magazine, and in the Lovecraftian anthology Dead But Dreaming, and also as episode 48 of the Pseudopod podcast. And today on the show, we'll be interviewing Alan Dean Foster. He's the author of over 100 books, including such series as the Commonwealth novels, the Spellsinger novels, and the Journeys of the Catechist. He's also written dozens of TV and movie tie-ins, including Star Wars A New Hope, Star Trek The Motion Picture, and Alien. His latest book is called Predators I Have Known, a memoir about traveling the world in search of deadly animals. Okay, so let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Alan Dean Foster. Welcome to the show. Nice to be here. Okay, so first of all, you wrote the novelization for the original Star Wars movie. How'd you get involved with that? My agent got a call from uh, a gentleman who I believe was George Lucas's lawyer at the time. Someone, as I recall, it had read a book of mine called Ice Rigger, and they thought that that was similar enough in spirit to this little film that George Lucas was making that uh, I might be an appropriate person to do the book version of the film, and was I interested? And I knew... Lucas's reputation, of course, from THX 1138, American Graffiti, so I said, sure. So I went to the lawyer's office over in Hollywood, and we had a nice chat, and apparently I didn't put him off entirely, <laughs> because he said, this, this is fine, I think this might work, but George needs to approve you, why don't you go out and meet him, and we set up a meeting. At that time, Industrial Light and Magic was operating out of a converted warehouse in Van Nuys, so I went over there at the appointed time. The first thing I saw when I got there was this immense plastic, looked like a little cityscape laid out on plywood tables out in the parking lot. I later found out that this was the surface of the Death Star, uh, and they didn't have enough room inside the building for all of the, uh, the plastic parts, so they were setting it up all outside in the parking lot. Went in, and then George came out, and we said hi, and he said, let me show you around, and he did, and he's like, here's the Death Star, and here's the Death Star, and it's this basketball-sized piece of plastic, and we're talking for a little bit, and uh, we had a very nice time, and just to make conversation after a while, I, I was trying to think of something to say to this person whom I just met, and I said, if the film's a big success, what do you want to do afterwards? And he said, I'd like to make small experimental films. What's interesting is, uh, not too long ago, there was an interview with George on 60, I think it was 60 Minutes, and the interviewer, the gal, asked him what he wanted to do with the, you know, at this point or with the rest of his life, he said, I'd like to make small experimental films. So that hasn't changed. He's just gotten <laughs> slightly sidetracked in the intervening decades. So I went and did the novelization, and it was a two-book contract. The second book was for a proposed sequel to the first film. That's what became Splinter the Mind's Eye. And that all went swimmingly, and that's how I got involved with it. And did you have to pretend for a while that you, uh, you had to, people would ask you if you had written it and you had to sort of lie to them? in the contract that I couldn't admit to having written the book, which I had no problem with. It wasn't my idea, it wasn't my story, it was somebody else's that I was expanding upon a little bit and turning from script into book form. But it was
was kind of strange to meet people who were familiar with my style insofar as I might have a style who had read the book after the book came out, the film came out, and said, you know, you know, this sure reads like your style. Huh? Did you write this? And I would have to look them in the face. Sometimes friends of mine say, nope, nope, had nothing to do with it. How did it come out that you were allowed to talk about it now? Did it, like, expire the 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 limit, of the, the term that you had to keep quiet or something? Or No, what happened was a book called The Life and Times, Skywalking, The Life and Times of George Lucas by Dale Pollock came out. I think that was the first book of any size on, on George's work. And in the book, um, it was mentioned that I had written the novelization. So there it was out in print in public, at which point uh, I had my agent ask Lucasfilm, there was a Lucasfilm at that point, say, look, you know, it, it seems kind of funny to keep saying I had nothing to do with this, plus it's going to be a lot harder to deny when it's out in print. <laughs> and the company very uh, kindly sent us a release and said, well, yeah, you might as well. You know, at this point in time, years and years had passed. So that's how it became public. Uh, it was obviously an accident that I think nobody caught. George being busy with other films at the time, uh, you know, certainly didn't have time to proof accessory books. Uh, now he has a whole staff to do that. And so uh, apparently you had to write the novelization for Ridley Scott's movie Alien without knowing what the alien looked like. Could you tell us about that? That was very difficult, as you can imagine. I got the screenplay, and I got some very nice pre-production drawings, and also photographs from the set, which were all very useful in the writing of the book. But no matter how hard I pleaded, and no matter how hard my agency pleaded, Fox simply would not release any pictures or drawings of the alien. So if you read the book Alien, there is no description of the alien. Uh, it, was, it was an awkward exercise. And I did the best I could, uh, given those limitations. Maybe it was a good thing. I don't know. But it sure was a hard way to write the book. Um, here's the crew encountering the alien, and I can't describe what it looks like. So. But it was a mood piece anyway. <laughs> so that's what I tell you. Yeah, it's a mood piece anyway. didn't need a description. Uh, so you've also written novelizations for some pretty bad movies. Uh, how do you handle that as a writer, and how much leeway do you have to improve upon the, uh, the plot and dialogue and whatnot? As far as what I get to fix in the finished version, that depends entirely on the film company. The publisher doesn't care as long as they get a, a publishable book on time. The movie company, sometimes they pay no attention to it, which is wonderful, which means you do get to fix all of those problems, like characters sitting around in space without spacesuits, things <laughs> like that. But sometimes they do get involved. As an example, I'll mention Alien 3. I had done the book versions of the first two Alien films. I was looking forward to the third one. Hopefully, I was hoping Warner Books wouldn't uh, mess me up with Aliens. They took out all the swear words for the Marines, which I didn't find out about until a fan wrote me and said, why did you take out all the swear words for the Marines? <laughs> and I kind of blinked and said, I didn't do that. Apparently, somebody at Warner thought that would make the book more acceptable to younger readers. <laughs> So we all know what a fiasco that was. The book still holds up, I think, but I do miss the fact that the Marines didn't get to talk like Marines. But with Alien 3, uh, which I wasn't impressed with the script, uh, in fact, there were some things in it that I thought were downright vile, like killing the little girl, which removes Ripley's motivation for staying alive. But without going into all that, what I did was try to give backgrounds and histories for all of the characters in there why these men were stuck on this horrible prison planet, what they had done to get there, 
what they might be like, how they would react, and clean up some other things like uh, there's a scene in the film where uh, two of the characters are sitting on a mountain of used batteries trying to find still viable batteries to use in their flashlights. And I'm sitting there reading this thinking, jeepers, it's, what, 300 years in the future and everybody's still using ever-ready D-cells. Uh, so I fix, tried to fix things like that, and I was fairly proud of the finished result. And it was then submitted, and it came back from, from Warner and from my agency, together with a letter from Walter Hill, who was one of the principals on the film, saying, you can't change this and you can't change this. And we think if you just write the book as the film is written, it'll make for a much better book. So I forbore from writing back and saying something like, I've, I've done this for a while and I have a pretty good idea what I'm doing here. Uh, you can't do that. It's a work for hire and it wouldn't, wouldn't have done any good to say anything like that. And there was a publishing deadline anyway. So I just threw up my hands. I had to tear out all of those backgrounds and all of that personal detail and all of those fixes that I put into the book which is why when I was offered Alien Resurrection, I turned it down. I just didn't want to get involved with the franchise and the franchise owners again. So didn't you send Disney a list of ways they could improve their movie The Black Hole and that didn't go over so well? Uh, well, uh, I had nothing to gain from doing that. My job was to do the, the novelization. But again, I'm still the fan. And you just twist and squirm in your seat when you see something on screen that you know could be done better. So as I was working on the book, version of the black hole I put together when I when I was getting near the end a list of approximately 75 things that I thought could be fixed in post-production because the film was obviously well along you couldn't go back and fix some expensive scene that had already been shot I didn't ask maybe this was my mistake I didn't ask for any recompense for doing this but I handed it over to my contact my go-between with Disney and said here you know for whatever it's worth uh, here's my ideas and if they don't like mine, tell them to go over to Burbank High School and talk to them <laughs> in the physics class. That probably wasn't a good tagline, but I did it anyway. Uh, and then I forgot about it. Nothing happened. Years went by, and I eventually ran into that gentleman again, and we had a nice chat. And I said, uh, that, that list of post-production suggestions for the black hole that I gave you, I guess nothing ever happened with that. And he said, oh, no, no, no. They had a meeting about it, and people got very, very angry. And, and that's part of the problem, you see. It's, it doesn't matter whether you make a good film or a bad film. What matters is that you get the film made, it gets in the theaters, and it has your name on it. That's what's important. Whereas somebody like George, for example, Lucas, uh, as far as I know, he would have taken a suggestion from the janitor if he thought it would have improved the film. That's just my take on, on the film and George. But, you know, there are a lot of people in the motion picture business for whom reputation and ego is more important than the finished product. Then you get somebody like Peter Jackson, who hires a new young filmmaker like Neil Blomkopf to make something, big project, the project gets canned, and instead of telling his protege to get lost or find something on his own, he says, well, what have you got lying around that we could do? And then you end up with a picture like District 9, which is made because the money people leave their hands off it, and the writer-director gets to make his own vision. Now, that's not a perfect film either, and I could go through and critique little things in that, but it's a film made by somebody who loves the genre. And you can tell, you can see the love for the genre in that film. Okay, so tell us about your new book, Predators I Have Known. What's it about? Well, for years, people were after me to write a travel book uh, because I've been fortunate enough to be some unusual places and see some unusual things, and I never could think of an approach that 
uh, that sparked me. I didn't want to do the standard. Here we are today in London, and over here is the Tower of London, and the crown jewels are inside, etc., etc. It occurred to me that most people like stories about animals, and that I'd been lucky enough to have interaction with some very unusual animals, and I thought that would make a good basis for a book, and that's how and why Predators I Have Known finally came about. Uh, so what are some of the most dangerous animals you've encountered? Well, aside from the two-legged kind in Hollywood, who's going to feature in this book, that'll be another essay somewhere down the line, uh, where I have nothing left to sue for. Uh, it's always the small things that get you. It's not nearly as dramatic to see a parasite as it is, for example, to see a lion or a tiger or a shark in the wild. But those are the ones that uh, inevitably end up getting people. They just don't make uh, the Discovery Channel or National Geographic because they're neither sexy nor photogenic. I mean, how, like, how about like uh, you know diving with the sharks and uh, the river otter, the otters and stuff like that? Well, uh, in 1991, I went to South Australia to go cage diving with a remarkable gentleman named Rodney Fox, which is a name that would be familiar to anyone who knows anything about sharks and their history uh, in popular culture, or in science, for that matter. But there was an occasion on the sixth day of the trip, there were about half a dozen sharks circling the boat in the cages. There are always two cages in the water to accommodate a maximum of eight divers at any one time. My mask kept flooding, and I kept popping up to the top of the cage, which has an open gate, to try and clear it and then go back down and back up and back down. While I was doing this, all of the other divers were staying down and using up their air, so they were getting out one by one as they did so. Eventually, I found myself the only one still in the water. And at that point, as I describe in the book, everything mentally changed for me. I suddenly found myself doing all of the things that I wondered if I would be doing before the trip, uh, looking down at my feet. The bottom of the cage, of course, is just bars just like the sides of the cage. Looking behind myself all the time, even though the sharks are completely silent and you can't hear them. It's an astounding sensation to be literally within hand's reach of of a one-ton animal that makes no sound. Uh, and looking in all directions at all times, and sometimes moving away from the cage and into the center of the cage. That didn't happen when there were other people in the cage. I'm sure this is a sensation that goes way back to the time when when our primate ancestors started moving around in groups instead of individually. So it was, it was, mentally, it was a very, very interesting and unsettling experience for a brief amount of time. But that's why you do these sorts of things. If you want uh, something that's frightening and predictable, you go to Disneyland or Universal Studios. And then you, you talked about otters too, right? Because people don't think of otters as being dangerous, I don't think. Well, most otters aren't dangerous. But uh, the giant otter of South America, which can grow up to six feet long and 80 pounds, and whose main dietary component is piranhas, you have to have a lot of respect for any animal that dines <laughs> in piranhas. Is, is a different uh, kettle of otters altogether. <laughs> they have very big teeth. They're extremely fast and very intelligent. And they have been known uh, across South America to attack human beings. Nonetheless, there are times in your life when you feel that you, you simply have to do something. It had always been a dream of mine to try and get in the water with these animals. Uh, they're pretty much my favorite creatures on the planet. And I had the opportunity to do that in the Pantanal in southern Brazil. We had come across a family of them feeding, and there were some fishermen nearby. 
and the fishermen would occasionally throw bits of fresh fish into the water, which the otters would come and get. Uh, so I had decided that if I was going to get in the water with any group of otters, here was a group that it certainly was not domesticated or tamed, but was at least acclimated to the presence of human beings. I had the Brazilian guide I was traveling with uh, ask them if anyone had ever gotten in the water with this particular group, and they just sort of, the fishermen did look at each other and shrug, as if to say, why would anybody want to? <laughs> and I had prepared myself by putting a swimsuit on underneath my uh, my pants, and I got undressed and slowly eased myself into the water over the side of this little aluminum skiff. Now, this is a blackwater river called the Pijam, and a blackwater river is a river that's full of tannin from a plant runoff from plants, and it's literally black. You can't see more than an inch or two below the surface of the water because it's completely dark. It's almost like swimming in ink. It's a very strange sensation. You look down and you can't see your feet in the water. But that's where the otters were, and that's where I had to go. As soon as I got in the water, most of the otters went back in among the water lilies and reeds, but this one otter stayed. So I very gently hung onto the side of the boat. The otter immediately came up and bumped into me, which gave my guide more of a start than it did me. He wanted to know if I'd been bitten. And I said, no, just bumped. And I continued to lower myself into the water until I was floating free, and I gradually swam gently away from it, and the otter just stayed in front of me. I stopped and began treading water, and the otter disappeared, and I looked around. I couldn't see it anywhere, and I keep hearing shouts from the boat behind me saying, he's he's behind you, he's behind you. So I turned around and looked at the otter, which was indeed probably seven or eight feet behind me. As soon as I did, the otter disappeared. So I'm looking for the otter, and I hear shouts from the boat. She's behind you, she's behind you. I prefer to think of it as a she. So I turn around, and sure enough, there's the otter seven or eight feet behind me. And this goes on for about five minutes, at which point it occurs to me that the otter is playing with me. It's playing hide-and-seek. Mm -hmm. Because every time I turn to look at the otter, the otter disappears and swims behind me. And in fact, one time, while I was treading water, I had no idea how deep the river was. You certainly couldn't see the bottom. I kicked it pretty hard. It had come underneath me so shallow that in the course of treading water, I whacked it pretty good with a foot. And I thought, well, if I'm going to get bit, now's the time. But as far as the otter was concerned, and as far as I was able to determine, it was just part of the game, because it went on for another five minutes, at which point the otter got bored and swam off. Hmm. And that was, to say the least, an extraordinary experience. Well, could, could you talk about some of the ways that these animal encounters have influenced your science fiction over the years? My wife and I spent a month and a half in Tanzania back in 1986, and I had prepared an entire outline prior to the trip of a book I was going to write presumably based on the experiences I was going to have. <laughs> and the experiences I did have were so different from those that I had anticipated having that I threw the outline away and wrote a completely different book, which was called Into the Out Of. And many of the things in that book draw directly on experiences that I had while we were in Tanzania, including in a place called Lake Manyara National Park, encountering the oldest elephant I've ever seen. This was an elephant so old it had deep, deep creases all over its skin, and its tusks crossed at the bottom. That's how long it had been growing those teeth. Uh, it, it looked like a mammoth without hair. It must have been 60 or 70 years old easily. And we had an excellent view of it. There was nobody else anywhere around Tanzania at that time. had very few tourists, and there was, as far as we could tell, nobody else in the park at that time. 
wandered off into deep brush and how it had survived carrying that kind of ivory uh, for so many decades, I have no idea. But in the book, there's a scene that involves the king of the elephants, and it is that elephant. The only difference between the one in the book and the one that I actually saw is that the one in the book actually walks along a fraction of, a, of an inch above the ground. But the thing about elephants is, if you see them in the wild, is they, when they're walking, they're utterly silent. And the idea that they might not actually be touching the ground, I thought, was an interesting one. The only way to find out, of course, would be to lie down on the ground very close hmm. to an elephant's foot and try to take a look. So there isn't anybody who's challenged me on it yet. Hmm. Okay, great. I mean, I've heard you say that overpopulation is a major reason why so many animals are going extinct, and science fiction writers have been sounding the alarm about overpopulation for a long time, but it doesn't seem to be something that gets talked about a lot these days. I mean, why do, why do you think that that is? Politicians don't want to talk about it. Uh, the only place that really talks about it, for better or worse, is China. And they're not having a whole lot of luck. They're doing better than they were, but they're not having a whole lot of luck controlling controlling their population either. Part of the problem being the disparity that's that's cropped up now between uh, boys and girls, both in China and India. Uh, there are a lot of interesting reports out there that deal with the fact that when you historically have hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands of young men with no marriage prospects, uh, they tend to look for other things to occupy their time, and these generally don't turn into be uh, don't turn out to be good things. But when you've been places like, for example, southeastern Peru, which may be the most biologically diverse place on land on Earth, and you go to some place like Manu National Park, and there's nobody there as far as tourists go. They might see 20 tourists a year back in 1987 when I was first there, or 50 tourists. And then you go back 10, 15 years later, and there's boats going up and down the Manu River, and there's a, a full-service lodge just outside the park boundaries. And now there's a road across South America going from Brazil through Peru. And this is in, in less than a quarter of a century. Uh, you just start to shake your head. In, in books like uh, Phylogenesis, part of which takes place in the Amazon, I postulate the notion that the only way you're going to have any wild animals or any wild section of the world left at all is to have dedicated ranger forces that are highly paid and highly trained and who have orders to shoot to kill. Otherwise, it's all going to disappear. Okay, so changing gears a bit, you've said that you once had a story that was being considered for Harlan Ellison's Dangerous Visions anthology. Could you talk about what happened with that? Okay, well, that's another good a good, a good example for beginning writers and would-be writers. Back in the Jurassic, I had, I had written a story uh, called Silent Songs in Stone, and I gave it to David Gerald. Um, we're talking early 70s, I think, now late 60s, early 70s, uh, David was editing a couple of anthologies at the time, and he looked at the story and he said, I can't use this, but I've got a friend, Harlan Ellison, who's putting together an anthology called Dangerous Visions, and I think this might be the sort of story that he might like. Why don't you submit it to him? So I got Harlan's address, and he said, come on over, and I took the story up to his house, and he read it, and sort of nodded to himself and looked at me and said, uh, well, it's a great ending. I love your ending, but the rest of the story is shit. And would you be interested in reworking it? I'll give you some ideas and suggestions. And I, of course, being a beginning writer, said, sure. The upshot of which was I went through about four revisions of the story, none of which quite matched up to what he was looking for, which was fine. Now, at the time, I was getting ready to go into active duty in the Army, and I was also working on trying to finish up my first novel, The Tar and Crank. 
I had limited amount of time left, and I had to make a decision between continuing to work on the story revisions or finishing the novel. And at that point, uh, after several tries, I opted to finish the novel. While I was finishing the novel, I sent the story to John W. Campbell, an analog, because Campbell had published my first story. And he sent it back to me and said, you know, I love your story, but the ending is crap. <laughs> and that taught me a very valuable lesson very early on. Here were two men, excellent, excellent uh, editors, brilliant writers, who liked diametrically opposed things about exactly the same story. And what that taught me was uh, you take advice uh, where you can get it and you use it as you can, but in the end you might as well write what pleases you because no matter what you do, you're not going to be able to please everybody. Uh, okay, so in a, in a recent interview, you mentioned that you'd written in a you'd written a fantasy novel that takes place entirely underwater. Uh, could you tell us a little bit a little bit about that? Not much, without giving it away. Uh, it, it hasn't sold yet. It's being read right now. The industry has slowed down a little bit in in many cases because everyone is a little uncertain about this and that. And when you try something a little different, it becomes a little harder to sell it. I think. But I'm very proud of it. It's a proposed trilogy, although it might end up being just one big book. And the first volume is called Blue Magic. And it's a heroic fantasy that does take place entirely underwater. And within that, even though it's a fantasy, it utilizes a number of the animal encounters, both uh, predatory and non-predatory animals, that I've had over the years uh, scuba diving. Not just sharks, although there is something in the book called Shark Magic, but... uh, cephalopods and regular fish and crabs and all the other denizens of the underwater world. And though it's a fantasy, I try to keep that aspect of it as scientifically sound as possible within the realm of the fact that I'm, I'm doing a fantasy book and not a science fiction book. I mean, you, you mentioned that, uh, I mean, you wanted to sort of hold off on writing the book until you'd had some diving experience. I mean, can you think of anything that authors would get wrong about um, describing underwater scenarios uh, without that kind of first-hand diving experience? It's difficult to think what somebody else might do wrong, but there are certain things. Well, to give you an example from the book, from Blue Magic, there's a fairly complex, climactic, final siege of the castle sort of scene. Uh, Underwater, if most of your characters are capable of swimming, you can't have a standard siege of the castle scene because everybody just would swim over the castle walls, (laughs) just like the little castle you'd put in your goldfish tank. So you have to design the battle in a way that accommodates the fact that most of your characters, if not all your characters, are capable of free swimming. And it changes not only the dynamics of the battle, but the kind of tactics that have to be used and employed. So that's just one example. Uh, that's, a, that's if you want to make your fantasy realistic, if that's not a contradiction in terms. It would be very easy just to do it like a standard battle and say, well, you know, the merman here can't swim over the wall because there's an invisible field or something like that. But readers pick up on stuff like that right away. They know when you're trying to uh, trying to scam them. And I won't do that. I may write something that's scientifically invalid. I hesitate to use the word impossible. But at least it's based on, on something in real science. I'm not going to just do the genie out of the bottle thing and say, well, this works because uh, you know the magic molecule makes it work or because the genie waves his magic wand. You try to make it as realistic as possible. You want people to feel that they're they're reading something that could happen, even if it's a fantasy. It's one reason why the Arabian Nights, I think, have lingered for so long. 
not just because of the characters, but everything is, is so detailed uh, and works well within within the context in which it's set up. Um, and you also you have a recent novel called The Human Blend. Uh, what's what's that about? That's the first book of a trilogy called the Tipping Point Trilogy. The second book will be out later this year. And it involves global warming just as a background, but primarily it's focused on physical manipulation. If you want to say cosmetic surgery, that's fine. Mm -hmm. The idea is, and there's, there's an article in the, in the, on the web almost every day about this sort of thing. Someone has invented a better way to make artificial skin or regrow a fingernail or uh, an artificial eye. It's the idea that within 100, 150 years, you'll be able to go into various medical facilities, uh, some fancy and some not, and get pretty much anything done to your body that you want to do in the way of a modification, whether it's your face or you want longer fingers or you want a bigger voice. Uh, and, you know, what happens when that becomes not just possible, but cheap? Parents these days, some of them will try to get their kids on human growth hormones because they think it will enhance their athletic abilities as they get older. Well, if you can do that sort of thing, uh, then you can, you know, and we've been moving this way just with nutrition and diet and exercise. You start moving from 220-pound to 270-pound to 320-pound linemen in the National Football League. What happens if you can speed that process up through science? Do we have 400-pound linemen, 500-pound linemen? It kills the sport because there becomes no end to it. If every woman in a room can have herself modified surgically, to look like Marilyn Monroe, and six Marilyn Monroes show up, suddenly looking like Marilyn Monroe doesn't become such a great thing anymore. And all of the other possible ramifications and permutations that spring from that. And there's a big mystery at the center of it as well, which I'm obviously not going to talk hmm. about. So there are a number of different things going on. But I, again, I tried to be as realistic about it as possible. Something else I try to do is, if I'm writing a story in the near future that takes place entirely or almost entirely on Earth, I try to put it in places that haven't been overused. It gets very boring when all of your science fiction stories in the near future take place in London or New York or Tokyo or Los Angeles. So in this case, uh, the human blend, for example, takes place almost entirely in Savannah and central Florida. Okay, so uh, are there any other new or upcoming projects that you'd like to mention? Well, my hope is to get to work on the second book of uh, the Ocean Earth trilogy, starting with Blue Magic as soon as possible, but uh, that's in abeyance at the moment, and um, I have some short stories coming out, which you, John, would know something mm -hmm. about, and uh, I'm just waiting, basically, for, um, I really want to get back to work on uh, on Ocean Earth and do the second book in that trilogy, or expand, I haven't decided yet, or expand it into a, a very, very large single fantasy novel. I'm also involved with uh, a web animated series project called The Xenoids which is a project of William Shatner's and also involves Amanda Tapping and Ashley Simpson, who have all agreed to do voices for it. And there is an Australian company that is in the process, uh, I hesitate to mention it this early in, in the process, but uh, they are putting together uh, a prospectus and uh, getting together, hopefully financing, to do Spellsinger as a mm. regular film, and possibly as two films, since the first book is split into two books. But again, that's all. You, have, you hate to talk about things that are in the preliminary stages, but that's very exciting stuff. We're talking voice talent at this point. And, uh, I would be very closely involved with the production and hopefully do the screenplay. 
But more about that later in the year, I hope. All right. Well, Alan Dean Foster, thanks for joining us on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. It was my pleasure. And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Alan Dean Foster for joining us on the show. All right. So since, uh, you know, since Alan's memoir is called Predators I Have Known, of course, it just... Uh, made me think of the most famous predator in sort of science fiction film is, uh, you know, from the movie Predator and Predator 2 and Alien versus Predator and and the most recent movie Predators. And, you know, uh, among our in friends... Which the Predator hunts the most dangerous game. <laughs> Man. Um, but, you know, so like among our, our friends in New York, we've had kind of a long-running disagreement about whether Predator or Predator 2 is a, is a better movie. And this is, has been somewhat, you know... Um, uh, the, the, the disagreement has been somewhat limited by the fact that, you know, most of us haven't seen these movies since we were 13 years old and had no real desire to watch them again. So, uh, you know. Well, well, the ones that we didn't like. Uh, I mean, I don't know about you. I, I don't know if you've rewatched Predator 2 because you're in the Predator 2 camp. I'm in Predator 1 camp. Um, I've personally seen Predator 1 fairly recently, and, and I love it still. But Predator 2, I don't want to watch again. Yeah, well, I well, I, I had not seen any of them, you know, since I was 13 or whatever, but I just rewatched, you know, just a day or so ago, I rewatched Predator and Predator 2, and I watched Alien vs. Predator for the first time. I, I hadn't seen it because I just heard it was so bad. Um, and, and it is. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I was actually planning on watching Alien vs. Predator 2 as well, but uh, after after the, after Alien vs. Predator, I, I I just couldn't take another bad movie. But no, that's true. I, I had been in the in the Predator two Predator two camp. I think it was just the Predator two camp was just me and Rob. I think. Um, yeah. But uh, I don't know. Having having just well, yeah, you know. So I, I watched first. I watched I rewatched Predator two because it's just an instant download on uh, on Netflix. You know, free download. And uh, and wow, it's horrible. Aha. Um, <laughs> uh-huh. uh, yeah, it's sort of it was sort of like watching RoboCop two. You know, where I, I my, my memories of what happened are actually pretty accurate, but it's like someone just like took the movie I remember and just made a really, really shitty version of it with like, you know, low budget and bad dialogue and stuff. Right. Um, but I still, I, I you know, I, and I've, I've never been all that fond of Predator anyway. So, so I watched that again and that's not, a, I don't think that's, the, that's a very, very good movie either. Uh, oh, you're crazy. So, well, we'll, 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 we'll get into that, but, uh. Yeah, so I don't know. I'm not. I'm. I'm I would. St- I would probably have to say at this point, the Predator is probably a better movie, but I don't think either of them are all that great. And there is actually there. I think there's more stuff in Predator too. I think is interesting, even if it's done really, really poorly. But uh, what? So, yeah, so why don't we start off and just say like, why do you like Predator? Yeah, I, I don't. Know. I mean, it's uh, it's just one of those action movies that just like it. Re- I really get it. You know. Um, I mean, I think the characters are all cool and. Um, I mean, there, you know, there's, there's not a lot of like those stupid one-liners, which is sort of, which is sort of indicative of those uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger movies from that era, um, like Total Recall and then and The Running Man, but um, which we've talked about on the show before. But you know, Predator, like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's just like it, it has like a real sense of like dread. I think that that works really well, and the music is really cool. Yeah, I mean, and the the final battle sequence between like. You know Arnold Schwarzenegger and, and the Predator. I mean that's that's amazing. I, I love that. I mean like I like when as soon as I saw that like I was like oh my god that's amazing and like I've always remembered that like so well and I mean it's actually giving me chills just thinking about it right now actually like that 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 is an epic epic uh, ending. Do you think if you were watching it for the first time today that you would like it that much or you you, you don't think it's just nostalgia? 
Uh, I don't know. It's hard to say. I mean, um, most of these things that I that I think um, I would only have liked them if I'd seen them when I was a kid. You know, when I watched them now, I don't like them. You know, like Total Recall. When I rewatched it, I was like, "Wow, that's that's pretty bad, actually." And I remembered loving that. You know, um, but you know, I don't know. Predator feels like a mature movie to me. That you know, I don't know. I, I think I would like it, but it's hard to say. The, the 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 one thing I remember from Predator that I really really liked was the part where Arnold Schwarzenegger is sort of cornered by the Predator and he thinks he's done for sure, but then he realizes that since he's completely covered in mud, it can't see mm-hmm. him with its you know thermal imaging vision. Right. Um, and uh, I remember that. That was awesome. I remember that being that was like the one part I remember being really cool. But I always I always like my memory of the movie was just like the 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 first half was just kind of it kind of took too long to get to the Predator. Um, and I kind of, I still agree basically with that assessment, rewatching it. Uh, you know, it starts out with a sort of commando raid on these gorillas and, uh, I don't know, just like, just like once you've watched, uh, like Black Hawk Down or Saving Private Ryan and stuff, I, I just, I have a hard time going back to like an action movie like this. It just doesn't seem real, uh, at all. Um, just like the way that the characters like carry their guns and stuff. But yeah, I mean the, the 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 mud thing is cool. Although when I when I watched it this time, I was kind of like, oh bullshit! I don't I don't believe that that would work. Right. Uh, so actually, so I googled that. Do you know about this? They actually did this on MythBusters. I don't know if you saw that. No, I don't know if I just saw that episode. They 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 tested it and it didn't work. Um, hmm. But uh, I don't know. There was a lot of disagreement online about whether this this works or not. Some people were saying that like under the exact right conditions, it could kind of work for you know a short time. Assuming, you know, the background, you know, the mud was thick enough and cold enough and the background was warm, you know, the, if, you, if, you're in, if you're in sort of like a equatorial jungle, you know, like in this movie, the background might be warm enough that the differential would, would be about right. The one, the one problem that, that was mentioned a lot is that uh, your eyes would still show up because, you know, obviously there's not like mud covering, you know, you'd have to like have your eyes closed and have mud smeared over your eyes or else yeah. then, you know, the heat from your eyes would still show up. So that was, you know. A, a big problem with uh, with covering yourself in mud, and then like they're like it wouldn't work after a couple minutes or something. It wouldn't work because your body heat would just warm up the mud to about the same temperature as your body. Right. Um, so like you know he kind of smears mud all over himself when he's setting up his traps and stuff, and and that wouldn't work. It's it's that sort of it's sort of it's that sort of a uh, uh, scientific thing that you throw in there in a science fiction story that you just like. Well, I'm not sure about that, but that sure is cool. I'll 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 overlook it. You know, mm-hmm. I mean. It just it it seems cool. And yeah. I like it. I, no, I'm I, glad that they did. Like I'm glad that they didn't have a science advisor on set. <laughs> well, that really won't work. Like you better not do that. I mean, because that was cool. Uh, no, I I agree. It is cool. Um, hey, do do you know the story about how how the idea for Predator came about? Uh, I think yeah, I think I've heard it before. But uh, go ahead. Uh, so apparently, you know, af- after the the last Rocky movie, at that point. There was just a joke going around Hollywood, like, who's Rocky going to fight next? He's beaten everyone on Earth. If they're going to make yeah. another Rocky movie, he's going to have to fight a space alien. And so that joke was just kind of going around Hollywood. And so the guys were like, hey, we should do that. So so that was kind of the, the initial idea, you know, for Predator. It was like Rocky fights a, an alien, <laughs> you know. But, uh, yeah, all right. So 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 moving on to Predator 2. So, uh, I don't know. What do you, what's your big, uh, what's your big problem with Predator 2 anyway? It's terrible. <laughs> That's what my problem with it is. No, I mean I don't know. It's just, um, I mean on on paper it sounds good. I mean you know have you yeah, watched you know, take, huh? Have you watched that one recently? I haven't watched two? it recently. I, I I watched it a couple of years ago. I mean like I saw it. I must have seen it. You know when it came out, and then like I don't know, probably like six years ago or something. I watched it. You know, 
Um, you know, like I was saying, I, I mean, on paper, it sounds good. I mean, you know, you, you know, you sort of take the concept of predator, but you bring it into the urban environment and, and, you know, have, let them loose there. And the idea of them, the idea that, you know, he's coming because it's like the hottest summer on record and they need like, you know, they need the hot environment or whatever to hunt in. He's like, that was cool, you know? And, and in the ending, it has some cool stuff at the end, but yeah, I don't know the whole, like the whole plot and the story and the characters and everything. It's all it's just a mess. It's terrible. Cause I actually, I actually think like the, the, the story is pretty good. Like the, the plot skeleton. I think you like, if you just like took the, that basic idea and just did everything and made it not so like cartoony and terrible yeah. acting and terrible dialogue and everything, like it could be a yeah. really cool movie. I mean, cause I, yeah, I, yeah. I remember it being really cool. It's, you know, like, like I said, you know, I just, it's like all this stuff that I remember being really cool. And then you watch it now and you're like, oh, wow, this is really badly executed. Um, yeah, it's just all bad execution. That's what it is. Yeah, you're right. Uh, did you know that, uh, I don't know if you remember, you know, there's the, the government agents who are tracking the predator um, mm-hmm. led by Gary Busey. Apparently that part was originally written for Arnold Schwarzenegger. Oh. You know, huh. his character was supposed to return, but uh, he didn't like right. the idea of the predator in a city and he, you know declined yeah. to, to, to be in the movie um but the thing the stuff I, I remember really liking about this movie is i really liked the uh the fact that the predators have this code of honor and that they won't kill unarmed people yeah um and i really liked the part where the the government agents have set up this trap for the predator where they've realized that it, it sees you know it attracts its mm-hmm. prey by heat and so they've you know they have these insulated suits and they have ultraviolet lights and they've set up this whole warehouse with ultraviolet lights and they think that they're just going to go in there and capture it because it won't be able to see them um I, I and and then you know you see from the predator's point of view and it realizes what's happening and so it switches from its you know heat v- vision to a to like ultraviolet vision um that, that, that yeah. was like you know that that's the part from that movie that really sticks in my mind as being uh really cool and then like as you're saying at the end you know after like spoilers you know spoiler warning but uh, you know at the end after uh, you can't spoil this movie <laughs> After Danny Glover, you know, defeats the Predator, and you're like, oh my god, he did it, he finally killed it, and then, like, like eight more of them appear, and they surround him, and then, but then they, uh, you know, they let him go, because he, uh, he beat, he beat that one fair and square. Uh, that, that also, you know, I remember that really vividly, and I've always thought that was really cool. And then also, of course, you know, he discovers the, the, the Xenomorph skull, you know, the alien from Alien. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, that was, that was one of the really cool things, and that's what spawned the whole Alien versus Predator thing. Did you have you seen the movie, the Alien vs Predator movie? Yeah, mm-hmm. I think it's pretty bad, but honestly, it's way better than I thought it was going to be because Paul W S Anderson is the director, right? And yeah, it's like, yeah. I mean, he's like one of the worst directors ever. <laughs> um, and it's like everything he touches turns to shit. I mean, even if it started off with a promising premise, although I can't say that many of his promises sounded all that promising. I um, I still think Resident Evil is a Half decent. Okay, movie. fine. Yeah, fine. Right. Okay. So I mean, he. I guess he. He did okay with that one. I mean, it's. It's not. It's not among his. It's among his best, certainly. But, um. I mean, most of the stuff he's directed is terrible. And you know, he's done a lot of these video game adaptations and stuff. And so you know, most of those end up terrible, no matter who directs them. But yeah, no. I mean, I had super low expectations going into Alien vs Predator. And so with that in mind, it actually, you know, I don't know. It was okay. Um. I. You know, it's. It's pretty bad. But I mean, I was able to watch the whole thing which is more than I can say for a lot of movies. I mean, probably what got me through it was I really want to see Alien fight the Predator. Yeah. You know, that's what I want to see. And so I think that sort of got me through the movie and, and got me through the tough parts uh, or the, you know, the terrible parts and, and, you know, maybe push through. It's like, I, I knew there would be a payoff. I knew I would get to see the Alien fight the Predator. Yeah. And I, I and when, you know, when the, when the alien sort of spears the Predator with its tail and you sort of, 
pulls it up and you see them looking at each other face to face. I did, I did kind of get chills at that point. That was uh, kind of cool seeing those two uh, iconic sci-fi uh, movie monsters kind of going at it. Yeah, it, Although, it's, just, it's, it's such a shame though, you know. I mean, because it's like you have something like that movie where it's like you know they've got to they've got to know that that's going to do well at the box office. I mean, you got you know, like you say, it's like the merging of like these two iconic monsters, right? And it's like it's it has like action written all over it, right? So I mean, couldn't they couldn't they put a little bit more time into the script? I mean, Jesus, um, it's just so appalling to me that you know it's like that movie is so bad. Um, I mean, you know, admittedly, I was saying it's not as bad as I thought it would be, but I mean, um, you know, it, it had so much potential to be like you know just like a great action movie, you know, and it's just like it's so disappointing. I mean, you know, especially since, I mean, I've heard, like, the Alien vs. Uh, Predator comics were actually good, and, and, and some of the books and stuff. I mean, they're popular. I mean, I, I've heard good things about them. I just, ne- I've never read them. But, you know, hey, it's like, you know, you should have hired one of those people to work on it, you know? We should we should talk to Jeff Vandermeer. He actually wrote a, a Predator novel. Did you know that? Yeah, yeah. I know, that was, that was like, crazy. I was like, wait, what, really? <laughs> Jeff Vandermeer wrote a Predator novel? That seems like an odd pairing. But, um, you know, he insists that, that, you know, he likes he likes a lot of, you know, sort of, you know, sort of standard commercial entertainment type stuff that you might not expect Jeff Animator like, you know, because he's a very literary type of guy or very literary type of writer, you know? Um, but going going back to Predator and Predator 2, because there, there was one thing, re, like just rewatching these movies that really bugged me, and that's that it's established in both movies that the Predators have this sort of, that they won't kill, you know, people who are who are unarmed. And both Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny Glover figure this out in the course of the movie. And then in neither movie does it really play any significant role in the story. Hmm. Um, well, I think that I think that's okay though, just because it it sort of it, it adds a sort of nuance to what they're to, to the to the monster. It's like it's not just a monster. It's like this is a hunter. Um, I actually kind of like that. I mean, I don't I don't think that it's necessarily a mistake to not have you know tried to exploit it because I mean I don't know that you could have because while the predator will not attack an unarmed person, like for instance in Predator One when he doesn't attack. Um, the woman that they had captive, it's like, he knows that she was a captive and she's not a warrior. Right. Um, whereas Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, even if he was unarmed, I mean, the predator wouldn't attack him unarmed because, you know, he's his prey, you know, he's the, you know, he, he, they're the ones that are in this contest against each other. Well, yeah, but you don't know that. Right. I mean, well, cause, cause I mean, there's that point where Arnold, Schwar- you know, the girl goes to pick up the gun and Arnold Schwarzenegger is like, no, don't do it. He won't right. kill you. unless if you're not, if you don't pick up the gun. You know, and you're like, well, wait, if he's figured that out, it sort of made me wonder, like, why, why doesn't he just then, like, chuck his guns away, you know, and maybe then the Predator will just, like, lose interest in hunting him because it's like, uh, you know, this isn't fun anymore. It's not a challenge if he's just going to, like, throw all his guns away, you know, I'm going to go look for some, some, you know, better prey to go hunt. Mm-hmm. Um, or it could be, like, a, a kind of a funny idea I had was that, you know, there might be some, like, regulations, like, so, yeah. So it might be that you know there's some authority over the predators where they're saying like you know okay we'll let you hunt on Earth, but you can only kill you know you have a limit of thirty people or something and uh, no unarmed people you know. Yeah, yeah. In which case you it would. Good. I was gonna say in which case it would work if Arnold Schwarzenegger were to throw his guns away, you know, yeah. because then you know the the predator would be like, well this guy's a warrior and I want to kill him, but you know according to my regulations here, you know. I can only go after people who are like actually holding a firearm or something like that. It seems to me it would be interesting if the characters would would at least have that conversation, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, it seems like because I, I was thinking it would be kind of interesting if you know, you know, at the very first um, 
sort of one of the heroes that the alien killed would be the guy, you know, he would sort of come up on the, the guy and the woman and kill the guy and leave the woman alone. And they'd be like, oh, maybe the predator just doesn't, you know, the predator only kills males or something. But then if they, mm -hmm. then maybe there would be like a female commando and then next the predator yeah. kills the female commando and they'll be like, okay, well, it's obviously it kills men and women. So there must be something else. And they would think, well, maybe it only kills people who are armed. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, and then maybe like the CIA guy would be like, okay, here's what we should do. I'm going to like, just throw my guns down and head off this way. And anyone who wants to come with me and try that, you know, can do that. Cause we're just getting slaughtered here. We don't stand a chance actually fighting this thing. And maybe mm -hmm. if we just like throw down our guns, it'll lose interest in us and go kill, kill the gorillas or whatever, you know, other gorillas who are lurking around. Yeah. And then ha half the guys are like, screw that. We're keeping our guns and we're fighting this thing. And they would like split up. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, the unarmed guys would try, would head for the chopper and the armed guys would head deeper into the jungle to fight the predator. And then it seems like, isn't that the best strategy then? Because then, you know, you're trying two different approaches. And even if the unarmed approach doesn't work well, the predator is still going to be drawn away by the armed guys, away from the unarmed guys. And so they have a better chance of making it to the chopper and sort of getting word out about what's going on with this alien in this jungle and stuff. Okay. Yep. Yep. That makes sense. Uh, I, I agree. That would be a good revision. Um... Uh, sadly, we got our chance at a remake, and uh, and it was, you know, not quite that. But yeah, you're talking about you're talking about uh, Predators now. The yeah, the I mean, you know, obviously, yeah, I mean, it's sort of a remake slash sequel, you know. Um, but I mean, because of that, they're not going to make a remake of Predators, a Predator, because they made that. Um, what did you think of? I actually thought I thought Predators was pretty good. Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's it's pretty good. I mean, it's uh, you know, again, I I watched the whole thing. Um, so I mean, uh, uh, I, I can't say that I loved it. I mean, you know, it was okay. Um, I mean, it did some stuff that was really cool. Um, I liked I liked parts of it. Uh, parts of it were kind of dumb, I thought. But um, yeah, no, it was it was all right. Actually, apparently, I I think I read that Robert Rodriguez Rodriguez actually wrote that script quite a long time ago, and mm -hmm. uh, and they chose not to go with it because they thought it, they thought it would be too expensive to film. And uh, then they went with the Alien vs. Predator thing instead. And then seeing what a train wreck that was, the studio kind of came back to him and said, actually, you know, we think we made a wrong turn, turn there. Well, we think we wow. really want to go that way, you know, your mm -hmm. way with it. And he was saying that, you know, he thought that there was a lot, there were more stories to tell on the Predator, you know, on that Predator world. And, yeah. you know, Adrian Brody's character was still alive at the end. So it sounds like there mm -hmm. might there might be a Predators too uh, in the future. Well, I'd watch it. I mean, you know, it was it was good enough to see what else they would do with it. Okay, but so, you know, moving on to our next subject, um, you know, since Alan's new book is about animals and stuff, we thought it might be fun to talk about animals and animal characters in, in fantasy and science fiction. And, you know, uh, the first thing that comes to mind for me is uh, the Redwall series by Brian Jakes, a sort of a young adult fantasy series about kind of uh, a world, a sort of medieval style world where there are talking mice and other kinds of animals and they go on quests and stuff. Uh, it's kind of like if you ever saw Disney's Robin Hood, you know, where, where Robin Hood and Maid Marian are foxes and the guards are rhinoceroses and stuff like that. It's kind of that, uh, that sort of thing. Um, you know, actually, uh, you know, Brian, I don't know if you know, Brian Jakes just died uh, within the past yeah. year. You know, you know, I went and saw him in L.A. Um, he came to, to do a bookstore appearance. And I think, uh, I think what I heard is that uh, he used to sort of how he got interested in writing is that he used to work at a school um, for blind kids. And so obviously, you know, like in, in that kind of environment, it's really great to be able to to read stories uh, to the kids. And so he just, you know, started making up stories. Uh, it was it was kind of fun, you know, when he came and, you know, and, and read uh, at the bookstore, you know, he uh, 
you could tell he had done a lot of, you know, reading uh, to kids and stuff. He really like performed it. And he was, and he said, you know, uh, the sort of the thing that sort of sticks in my mind that he said is, you know, he says, you know, a lot of uh, books, you know, they're all about shades of gray and stuff. And he's like, in, in my books, the goodies are good and the baddies are bad because that's the way that kids like them. Yeah. And, and so basically the same philosophy as George R. R. Martin. <laughs> okay, maybe not. <laughs> Uh, speaking of Jake's, uh, uh, did you ever see this 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 guy? Uh, this there was this self-published author who like basically took a picture of Brian Jake's sitting at a signing somewhere, and he photoshopped himself into the into the photo so that he was like sitting at the table with Brian Jake's. Did you ever see this? No. Uh, yeah. So so this guy Robert Stanek, he's like a self-published author, and 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 he he was photoshopping himself into this into these photos with Brian Jake's, and like so it looked like he was sitting at the table there signing with Brian Jake's. Uh, to like sort of make him look legitimate or something, and uh, and it was like a terrible Photoshop job because like you could see underneath the table and like you could see that he didn't have any legs. <laughs> no, that guy Stanek, that guy is is it's just so weird. You know, I, I understand that he was like a, a CIA, what do you call it, a psyops, you know, psychological warfare kind of uh, specialist or something. What really? Yeah, I, or maybe I don't know. Maybe he made that up too or something. But uh, yeah. That's the that's the story I have in my mind anyway, and that, that he sort of that's he approached publishing the same way as you know it's sort of like, you know, like the CIA they would like plant false stories in foreign <laughs> newspapers and stuff, and he so he did the same thing sort of to advance his publishing career, and so you would just come across his, his books online, and there would be just dozens and dozens of five star reviews saying you know this is the best book ever, it makes Tolkien look like a he's illiterate you know. And then every once in a while, you would just like scroll through pages of five star reviews like that. And then every once in a while, there would be a one star review, and it would just be like somebody, and they're like, "I, I bought this book because of all these, you know, breathless reviews." And I, I don't understand why everyone's so enthusiastic about this book. I, I read it, and it's, it's terrible. It's full of grammar errors, and the plot doesn't really make any sense. And I actually bought copies of what I thought were two different books, and they turned out to be just be the, the, just be the same books, book with different <laughs> titles and covers and stuff. And uh, and then as soon as one of those would appear, you know, there were like dozens more five star reviews would appear to, you know, push it out of existence. And, you know, it was just all all him or him and his friends. I don't know, you know, just writing all these these reviews. And I almost I almost bought one of them once from, you know, uh, on Audible, I think it was. I don't know. In, in some in the early days, you know, they it was he was on, you know, like the top top 10 list or something. And I was like, oh, that sounds fantasy i might check it out and i was like oh wait a minute it's that guy oh he almost got me but that's crazy i hadn't heard he had to photoshop himself in with brian jakes though that's yeah uh, yeah it was pretty funny um yeah but uh you know so speaking of uh brian jakes in the Redwall series you know and i mean the, the the characters in that are all primarily mice right yeah the heroes yeah yeah um and so you know uh actually uh, two of my favorite examples of of uh animals in in fiction is uh the secret of nim and mm. uh and the ralph s mouse books that beverly cleary wrote uh did you ever read those uh the secret of nim i was a big fan i haven't i'm not familiar with the other one okay yeah i mean you know the ralph s mouse books they're basically i mean they're it, it's like i think it's probably the first sort of fantasy that i ever read it's about this mouse who uh no i, I think he lives in, like in a hotel or something and so this boy comes and stays there and he, and he like leaves some toys and uh, one of the toys is this little motorcycle. And so the mouse discovers that he can get on this motorcycle and ride it. And like, he basically powers it by like going <laughs> like, you know, making noises with his mouth. Like, um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's not very much of a fantasy. It's just that the mouse is like a, you know, anthropomorphized, but, but yeah, I just thought, I thought it was interesting how, um, you know, like a lot of these, uh, uh, beloved, 
um, children's books are, you know, have mice as characters. I mean, because, like, The Secret of Nim, um, like, uh, I never actually read the book, but, because it's called, uh, it, the, the, the title of the book is actually longer. It's got, like, what, Mrs. Brisby and the Rats yeah, of Nim. Yeah, I think it's Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim, something like that. Well, it's weird because I know in the movie her name is different than it is in the book. It's like it's like it's either it's frisbee in one and brisbee in the other. I think. Okay. But anyway, um, yeah. And the but the the movie is what I'm referring to as as a favorite because I never read the book, but the movie's great, and I mean that actually holds up really well. Did you ever read uh, Watership Down or, or see the cartoon? Oh yeah, the cartoon is amazing. I, I actually never read the book either, but um, and I, I feel like I should because it's Richard Adams and his last name is Adams. <laughs> I feel like I should I should know all the Adamses that uh, write genre fiction. But um, yeah, no, I never read it. But um, yeah, no, the cartoon is amazing. Um, and actually, so is Plague Dogs. Now that you mention it, um, Plague Dogs is another Richard Adams uh, novel, um, and uh, there's also a cartoon. Uh, I think it's made by the same people, but. I'm not, I'm not sure if it's made. I, I'm pretty sure it is made by the same people. And I know, I know, Plague Dogs at least was. Uh, uh, it was written by Brad Bird, who later did, mm. um, you know, The Incredibles and the Iron uh, Giant. Iron Giant. Yeah, and Iron Giant, right? Yeah, but no, uh, both of those movies are are great. I mean, they're really dark too. So I mean, they're they're not really. I mean, they're they're really like. It, it feels inappropriate to call them cartoons. They're definitely like animated films, you know, because it's like they're not really for kids. I don't know. I don't. Know, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't say. Well, that's like the part from Watership Down that I remember, that I really remember is like right at the beginning, there's like a, one of the um, rabbits is like psychic or something. And, and he uh, has this um, premonition that their um, Warren is going to get fumigated or something. Mm-hmm. And uh, and he just, and you just see like that rabbits with their eyes rolling back in their heads and blood pouring out of their eyes or something. I don't know. I, mm-hmm. I, I, that's sort of how I remember it. Uh, you know, yeah. I saw it when I was a kid, but I was like, wow, it was, it's like one of those really scary things. Kind of, kind of like, you know, like when Bambi's mother dying, you know, where. Spoiler yeah. alert. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sorry about that. But, uh, no, but you, you, you know, and I actually, I, I could talk a little bit about, you know, my, my own experience writing a couple animal stories. Um, you know, I wrote in the last couple of years, I wrote two animal stories, uh, one called Red Road and one called Cats and Victory. And it's all, it's all kind of John's fault, uh, you know, because we were at a, uh, a science fiction convention called Lunacon. And he recommended a book to me, but he's like, oh, but just to warn you, it's got talking animals in it. Because, I don't know, a lot of, I guess a lot of people have a problem with talking animals in stories or something. And I was like, no, nah, it's cool. I like talking animals. And then uh, later I was thinking about that. And I was like, hey, yeah, I really do like talking animals. But I've, I don't, I've never written any talking animals stories. So I thought I would I would write one. I was kind of like, what kind of talking animal story could I write? And I actually thought about, you know, Brian Jake's uh, Redwall books and, and how much I had loved those. And my mind sort of flashed back to a, a conversation I'd had about those at uh, Jim Gunn's uh, writing workshop years ago. And I kind of made a joke where I said, wouldn't it be funny in one of those books if, you know, the mice just like all got their swords and went off on their quest and then like this happened? You know, I won't tell you what it is because it was sort of spoils the story. But I was like, yeah, that's pretty funny. I think I might actually do that. So I wrote that one and I had so much fun doing that. I was like, wow, I think I'm going to write another talking animal story. So then I was like, well, what other kind? Of, yeah. So I was like, what other kind of talking animal story could I do? And it occurred to actually occurs to me actually that when I was a kid, I had this uh, this series of like picture books that I did called Cats and Victory, and so I, I dug those out and looked looked at them, and they were just absolutely horrifying to look at now, because <laughs> like every story that you know it's like cats versus dogs, and like every story the cats were just like, and the cats were like so much better armed and stuff than the dogs, and you know outnumbered them so much, and every book they would just like kill dog after dog after dog, and then once all the dogs were dead, you know it was this you're like oh, and they all lived happily ever after. <laughs> and uh, I was like, wow, this is so disturbing. Like, why Why was I such a messed up little kid that this, you know, 
<laughs> the story about just like cats killing dogs, you know, is what I what I spent so much time on. And then like a bunch of the cartoons I used to watch as a kid, you know, started coming out on DVD and I started watching some of them. And that's kind of what they're like, too. And uh, I was like, oh, this is kind of this is where I got this is where I picked up a lot of this stuff. So I decided to like sort of reboot Cats and Victory and, uh, you know, make it have have a more sort of positive message, you know, for 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 kids who might who might read it. So, so yeah, so in, in the course of that, you know, it, I, I had t- kind of some interesting experiences. And, and one is, is with, with Red Road, um, you know, sort of like Alan was talking about, he wrote this story for, uh, for Harlan Ellison, and Harlan Ellison hated the ending, and then John W. Candle, Campbell loved the ending and stuff. I've had, like, that sort of experience with Red Road. I've never had a story in which I had more uh, sort of inconsistent response to, to the ending of a story that I've written, you know, like I... I sent it out in the first uh, magazine rejection I got. It said the ending is way too predictable. I guessed it on page two, hmm. and I was like, "Oh well, yeah. yes, yeah." And so I sent it out again, and then the next rejection I got said the ending com- comes completely out of nowhere. There's no setup for it whatsoever. No way anyone could possibly guess it. Um, <laughs> yeah, and uh, and it's sort of you know it's sort of been like that ever since. You know that hmm. for, for every person who reads it, who uh, even they've 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 read the whole story and they still don't get what happened. There's someone uh-huh. else who thinks it's way too predictable, and they don't even realize, you know, they don't understand how anyone could not understand it and stuff. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's really strange. Yeah, it's been a while since I read it, but I mean, I don't actually, I don't, I don't see how you could predict that. Like, I don't see how it could be predictable. I mean, I, I don't remember if you sort of made some hint early on, but I mean, I remember what happens at the end, and I, I, I don't see how that could be predictable. <laughs> but then the, the, and also the, the response to Cats and Victory has been kind of interesting because, you know, I. Uh, I, th- I just thought it would be, would be fun to to redo this thing that I that I spent spent all this time on as a kid. I didn't really think about, you know, publishing it or anything at that time, or you know, like what kind of what the public response would be or anything. And I guess I just didn't. Re- there's been a lot of like pe- I guess there's a lot of people who hate talking cat stories. Actually, you know, like the first uh, I think one of the one of the first rejections I got on it, this, the rejection just said like this violates my rule against t- publishing talking cat stories. <laughs> you know, uh-huh. and uh, yeah, and then once the story came out. A lot of people were, you know, were just like, I'm not even going to read that. I read the first paragraph and I saw that it had talking cats in it and I threw it across the room, you mm. know. Uh, and even like a lot of the, like all the positive re- reviews were like, I uh, I didn't think I was going to like this because it's, it's, <laughs> it's about talking cats. But I decided to give it a chance and I actually really enjoyed it, you mm. know. Yeah, uh, a lot of people really liked that story. Like, uh, you know, I mean, a lot of people like wrote some like very, very glowing reviews of it too. So, yeah, it's been pretty divisive as well. But, Although you know, it's not really—it's not talking cats. I mean, they're cat people, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, so and it's not like just—it's not—it's not like they're anthropomorphized cats. I mean, they're actually cat men. You know, they're like you know hybrids of cats and men. So I mean, that's a little different. But uh, yeah, but I don't know. It's just like you know, I—I I, I feel like I, I need to uh, to warn other writers out there. You know, <laughs> to, if you uh, dare to write a yeah, uh, you, talking animal story. Yeah, that there's this this anti-talking animal uh, contingent out there. So, yeah. Well, you know, there's a there's a there's a whole award specifically for uh, like talking animal stories, basically, uh, like the Ursa Major Award or something. Heard about that? No. Yeah, it's uh, more more formerly known as the Annual Anthropomorph- Anthropomorphic Literature and Arts Award, and it says, oh well, it says the Ursa Major Award is presented annually for excellence in the furry arts, and it's presented at Worldcon. But no, because that was that was kind of interesting because I did after the story came out, I started hearing from like furry you know people. And that was kind of interesting. And, and I mean, certainly when I first heard about furries, uh, the way it was sort of explained to me is that it's like people who 
like to have sex while dressed up in animal costumes. But then people started writing me and they were sort of explaining, they're like, no, that that's sort of like media sensationalism and that, you know, it's like people who like dressing up in animal costumes, like, you know, it's like fun to dress up in costumes, like on Halloween or whatever, but they don't, they're not, you know, it's not any more about sex than any other group of people, you know, just like to have sex or whatever, you know, but yeah, but no, but, but, but so somebody, somebody who was saying he, he thought that, you know, that there's so much, you know, that there is this sort of, um, antipathy toward furries, um, that, uh, that he thought that that's where, that it's, it's sort of some of that rubs off on, on fiction that just features any sort of animals or anthropomorphic animals or talking animals or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, kind of, it's kind of funny given how much, uh, how much of it there is, you know, that there, that there's that kind of reaction to it. I mean, uh, I mean, I guess I think part of it might also be just that like, Oh, that's kid stuff, you know, cause so much, uh, so much of uh, that kind of fiction um, is written for kids. Mm-hmm. I mean, just in terms, I think, I was thinking like in terms of cats, uh, you know, in, in fantasy and science fiction that, it's just kind of interesting that, you know, that cats are often um, depicted as having sort of like magical powers or like being able to see, because <laughs> I guess, you mm-hmm. know, cats are always just like staring. They don't seem to be, you know, they're just staring and they don't seem to actually be really looking at anything. So it's sort of easy to imagine that they're, uh, they're seeing stuff that you can't, but like, uh, you know, like in the movie Ghost uh, with Patrick Swayze, there's kind of a, a, a scene where, you know, the cat, you know, the cat can see him as a ghost mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, this, this guy is like attacking his, uh, his girlfriend and he sort of scares the cat and the cat sort of flips out and, and frightens the, the attacker away. I don't know. All the examples I could, like, like mice and it's kind of funny, like mice and cats, like all the examples I could think of, you know, mostly involve those two animals. Well, cause obviously you hate dogs. You have, you know, you have a whole story, which is about a genocide against dogs. <laughs> Just you're racist against dogs. Obviously. <laughs> well, I mean, I've got actually, I've got a couple dogs. Oh, all right. So yeah, let's hear some dog things. Um, so, uh, are you familiar with this movie called Bolt? Uh, I, I haven't seen, like, I haven't seen it, no. It was like I know a DreamWorks animated yeah. film that, uh, you know, computer animation, uh, um, I mean, basically it's about this, it's about this dog who, um, uh, and I'm not even sure if it's really genre. I mean, it's just sort of, I mean, it's, it's not very, re- it's not realistic, but it doesn't really, it's not necessarily fantasy per se. I don't, I don't think, or I don't, I don't really remember. It's just like, he's like a really smart dog, I think. But like so, it, it, the dog is uh, basically the star of a TV show, and uh, on the TV show, the dog has superpowers and stuff, you know. And so um, something happens where the dog gets kidnapped or something, and so and so when he gets out into the real world, like he's confused and you know, he thinks he's this dog on the TV show, you know. And so he thinks he has superpowers and that <laughs> he needs to be saving the world and stuff. Um, and so it's just it's really cute, and and I mean it's a good fun adventure story, and it's you know heartwarming and all that. And I mean it was really fun, I have to say. And I it didn't even bother me that it was Hannah Montana and and Volta. <laughs> um, and uh, on on a on a more uh, adult level, um, there's a there's a great uh, novella called Sergeant Chip by uh, Bradley mm. Denton uh, that ran in FNSF. Did you read that? Yeah, I, I love that story. Yeah. Yeah, so that's a great story. Um, I mean it's basically that's about. Uh, a military, uh, like it, it's about a military dog, you know, who was trained to, you know, serve in the military. And, but, but he also, the dog has some sort of intelligence boosting going on. Like, uh, I don't remember what the technology is exactly, but I mean, you know, he, he, he hasn't, he has some greater intelligence than a regular dog. And so like the story is actually sort of narrated by, by the dog. And, uh, and so it's like this really great story about, you know, him and his, and his officer that he's paired with. And, um, and this, and these like refugee, this refugee girl that he finds and has to learn how to communicate with and stuff. And it's, it's a great, great story. 
that, that actually just kind of reminds me that if, if you take writing, if you take a lot of writing workshops, I guess there's like a notorious idea that shows up over and over again. And that, so they tell you not, not to use it, but it's, it's a story where it's a first person story and the character like talks about going around doing stuff. And, uh, and then it turns out at the end, and then the last line of the story is always like, for you see, I am a dog. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. uh, that's just considered, uh, you know, bad, uh, you, you see that a lot of, among beginning writers where you have a story where the twist is, you know, that the character has been withholding some basic information about that would, you know, enable you to visualize accurately what's, what's going on in the story. And that's generally considered, uh, you know, something you'd be better off avoiding. I'm actually speaking of intelligence boosting. I mean, that, that just uh, makes me think of, which is what it makes me think of my favorite story, which is flowers for Algernon. Mm -hmm. Um, it's not really an animal story per se, although the, the eponymous Algernon is a mouse. Um, but I mean, you know, the mouse is sort of central to the story for a good part of it. And, uh, but I mean, you know, flowers for Algernon, if you don't know, is, uh, it, it's a story about, um, a mentally handicapped, uh, man who gets, uh, op an operation or gets a procedure done that boosts his intelligence and he becomes a genius. Uh, it, it starts off with him writing a series of journal entries and, and he, um, you know, it's like written, like it, he has progress report spelled wrong and, and he has a lot of other misspellings. And as the story progresses, it's like, he's getting more and more intelligent as this procedure starts to take effect. And, you know, so the, the journal entries get more and more literate. Um, and it, it's just, it's an amazing story. And, uh, you know, I mean, the Algernon, the mouse named Algernon is, is like some, it, it's like in the lab, the mouse is, I think the mouse also had the procedure done. And as uh, Charlie is the name of the protagonist. And as Charlie is sort of progressing through the procedure, um, he's like being tested against the mouse and like the mouse is like beating him and stuff, you know? And, uh, you know, it was published originally in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction where I used to work. And I mean, that was just like, <laughs> it was just like so cool to like have gotten the job at the magazine that originally published Flowers for Algernon, you know, I mean, it was, that's an amazing story. You know, when I was drawing up my list, I, uh, you know, I had Flowers for, for Algernon on it. And also on my list, I have Pet Cemetery by Stephen King. Oh, yeah, sure. And it had never really occurred to me sort of how similar they are in a way. So in both stories, you have uh, something bad is going to happen to a human being. And mm -hmm. you see it happen first to an animal. And ah. so you have that sort of like, okay. um, sort of horror, you sort of like imagine like, okay, I can see what this did to an animal. And now I have to like anticipate what's going to happen to a human being when the same, you know, thing happens to them. So like in, you know, in, in Flowers for Algernon, it's, you know, the, the mouse starts, uh, you know, losing its intelligence and sort of behaving erratically and stuff. And in Pet Cemetery, you know, the, uh, the Pet Cemetery, if you don't know the premise, it's, uh, there's a guy and, um, in his neighborhood, there's this um cemetery where children would bury their pets and then the pets would come back to life but they would kind of come back to life kind of all weird uh and so that happens i think he buries his cat there or something and the cat comes back um and then you know his son dies and so he has to decide whether to bury his son in this ground uh and what what'll happen you know what the son will be like if he uh, if he comes back to life uh, the way that the cat did um, yeah, no. So I was going to say another another of my favorite stories ever is uh, the Death Bird by Harlan Ellison, um, which actually isn't really an animal story, but there's an animal story within the story. Um, there's actually so there's a story within the story about this man and his dog, and I, and if I recall correctly, I mean this particular story within the story is not actually genre at all. It's just it's a it's a it's a little story that takes place, you know in the middle of this greater story called the death bird. But I mean, that's a, that, that, that story within the story is great. I mean, it's like this, this, this lovely 
story about a man and his dog. And, and I mean, it's, it, it's worth reading the story just for that. But I mean, the story overall is amazing. Um, but of course, speaking of Harlan Ellison, I mean, you know, you have to mention a boy and his dog, which is, you know, also a great, a great, great story. Uh, and I mean, this is a post-apocalyptic story about a, about a boy named Vic and his telepathic dog blood. And, and it's just about them sort of surviving in this post-apocalyptic landscape and, and, and about the sort of, uh, tough choices you might have to make. Uh, but it's really, I mean, it's like one of the best, one of the classics of post-apocalyptic fiction, certainly. So, so see, I came up with a lot of dog stories. <laughs> You just need to broaden your horizons. <laughs> actually, actually, a lot of the a lot of the things on my list here are. I mean, almost every. I think everything on my list is either dogs or or mice. Um, I don't I don't have any cats on mine. Actually, though, we should mention. You know, uh, Ellen Datlow actually recently did a cat anthology um, for Nightshade Books um, called Tales of Wonder, and uh, so that's actually full of you know cat stories. You know, actually, the the story I mentioned at the top of the show, The Disciple. It's a sort of um, I read it for a Lovecraftian anthology, but. Uh... In that one, you know, I just, you know, it's it's about a um a, a college class where they're learning how to do black magic, and you know, it's just sort of I don't know, I I, I didn't really give it a, a lot of a lot of thought. I was just like, yeah, you know, if you're learning black magic at a school. I'm sure it would involve some animals getting <laughs> bad things done to them and stuff. And so, you know, there's a, there's like a scene, you know, it's like a one paragraph where you know the cat gets crucified, and uh, you know, as 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 you do. You know. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, you know, and you know, like we were saying in an earlier episode, I mean, it used to be that you know the stories would, would get published and you wouldn't really hear much feedback, you know. Uh, and so the story had been out for for years and uh, in a couple of different um, bo- uh, magazines and anthologies and things. And uh, then it got onto the the Pseudopod podcast, uh, and you get a lot more feedback on on it on a story when it's on there. And boy, people really flipped out over the cat crucifixion. Uh, so that's another, uh, you know, people were, you know, and, and, and pseudopod, I mean, it says like these stories are meant to disturb you. We don't put a warning on the stories because you should just assume every story has a warning because that's how disturbing we want them to be. And people were still like, okay, yeah, but this is too disturbing even for that. Really? Uh, I mean, cat crucifixion? That's not that big a deal, it doesn't seem like. I don't know. So, I mean, that's, you know, that's, <laughs> that's my other experience writing about cats, I guess, that I, you know, you know, the, the writers, you know, should be aware of that, you know. You know, people, you can do anything to human beings. Nobody cares, yeah, but, uh, right. you know, anything bad happens to a cat boy, you're, uh, you're going to hear about it. I'm surprised you didn't crucify a dog. <sighs> yeah, I should have done that. <laughs> you know, next, we next. About that. All right. I'll have to now see you now. I'll have to write a sequel story uh, <laughs> so I can do that. But I guess just the, the last thing I wanted to mention uh, is, you know, when, when Alan was talking about, um, you know, um, species going extinct and stuff, it, it reminded me of this really uh, memorable Gene Wolfe story called Beauty Land. Mm. Have, you, have you read that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, you know, it's about, uh, it's been a while since I read it, but as I recall, uh, it, it sort of starts out and it's this totally ecologically devastated future and people have to wear gas masks and stuff. And... Um, a guy uh, gets picked up in a limousine and the the wealthy guy in the in the limo sort of uh, wants to confess uh, something to somebody and so he's just kind of picked this this random guy and he wants to tell him this story about what about how he got so rich and so he says that you know when the uh, the animals uh, when it got to the stage where there was uh, you know the animals really had almost all gone extinct he decided that he was going to open up a theme park um, you know called called Beauty Land and it was going to be like the last uh, example of all the different animals remaining and uh he was going to sort of auction off the right to to sort of sponsor the animals so you could be the one who was keeping alive the last tiger or the last you know bear or whatever it was and uh and it was a total flop and nobody uh, wanted to sponsor any of the animals and uh he was going to go bankrupt 
And so he decided to switch the, the premise around and make it instead that he was going to auction off the right to hunt and kill the last tiger and the last bear or whatever. And, uh, and this was a big hit, and he became unimaginably wealthy, and all the animals were hunted out of existence. And, uh, and that's, that's, it's, that's a story. I mean, it's a very short uh, story, but it's, uh, it's, 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 it's this unforgettable thing because it does sort of express something uh, sort of cynical and unfortunately it seems true about human nature. Mm-hmm. And on that note, <laughs> I think that's uh, I think that's our episode. So thanks everyone for listening. Oh, I guess we're uh, you know we're uh, sponsored by, sponsored by Audible.com. Uh, so we're going to I'm going to recommend another audiobook this uh, this episode. I was going to recommend On Stranger Tides by Tim Powers is available on Audible.com. This is uh, you know about ghost pirates and stuff. And um, Disney's uh, Pirates of the Caribbean. Uh, film franchise was very heavily influenced by this book and they actually uh, officially got the rights to, to this book and so the fourth pirates pirates movie that's coming out this summer is called pirates of the caribbean on stranger tides and i don't know so, somehow they're adapting material from this book into it so if you're planning on going and seeing that you should uh check out the book beforehand and uh you know so you'll you'll be ready and uh and actually, if you want to listen to Redwall by Brian Jakes, uh, which we talked about in this episode, um, they have that. They have actually all all of the Redwall books. It looks like, um, at least they have certainly they certainly have several of them. So I mean, if you're interested in that, uh, and uh, probably plenty of other stories about talking animals, uh, check out check out Audible.com. Yeah. So how it works is if you want to sign up for a free trial membership at Audible.com, you you know you'll get a free book, and if you do it by uh, going to our uh, website at geeksguideshow.com and clicking on the ads for Audible and, and signing up through that, you know, we'll uh, get some money to help us keep doing the show. Um, and of course, we always are looking for people to uh, give us ratings on iTunes. We're up to 47 ratings and uh, we'd really like to get up to, say, 50. So uh, if you want to just open up iTunes and type in Geeks Guide to the Galaxy and go to our thing there and give us five stars or whatever, uh, that would be great. Uh, yeah, and so you know, we also like it if we'd also like it if you could uh, post a comment on this episode if you enjoyed it. Uh, if you just go to our website at geeksguideshow.com, um, you can click on any of the episodes, and, and there'll be a link to the IO9 page there. And if you just leave a comment, let uh, saying that you enjoyed the episode or make some comment about it, that lets IO9 know that you love us, and that will encourage them to keep publishing the show. So that's another way to support us. All right, and I think that's it. So I uh, hope you enjoyed the show, and thanks everyone for listening. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of io9. For this episode's show notes, to subscribe to this podcast, or for more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your hosts, visit johnjosephadams.com or davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by Slipgate 9 Entertainment. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.